What's up? My name is Josiah Haken, and I've been working with homeless folks for over a decade. I'm convinced that one of the biggest reasons we have not been able to solve the homelessness crisis in our country is because we fundamentally do not understand why it happens or what or can be done about it. In this podcast, I'm going to interview friends of mine who have experienced homelessness firsthand, experts who have spent years of their lives trying to provide services and resources to their unhoused neighbors, and advocates and theologians who will help us think differently about the issue altogether. You are not going to agree with everyone I interview on this podcast. You may not even agree with me, and that is okay. Let's throw out our assumptions and consider the possibility that maybe there is more to this story than we previously thought. Welcome to the Neighbors with No Doors podcast. Alrighty, friends. Oh my goodness. I am so excited and grateful. Um, you guys are in for a real treat if you're listening to this because I have the pleasure of having a conversation with one of my heroes, uh, Shams the Baron, also known as the homeless hero. Um, man, it is so good to have you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to kind of help us process some of these issues and, and share some from your experience. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Appreciate you. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, it's always great to sit down and uh, discuss the issues and share information and, and, you know, just work collectively to see, you know, how we can center the message on housing and homelessness, but also how we can impact people in a positive way. Absolutely. I mean, I, so why don't we start at the beginning? I mean, I know you and I met briefly I don't know if you even remember this, but you and I met briefly uh, when during the, you know, uh, the pandemic, when uh, you were at the Lucerne um, and we were, my, my team was doing a, a, an outreach out by All Angels Church on the Upper West Side um, and we bumped into each other. And I just remember that conversation. It really stuck with me. Um, and I was like, this is a guy who's going to change the world. That's what I walked away thinking after that conversation. And that was so long ago compared to where, you know, things are at now. Because that's when we first got in the community and it was such, you know, and I, I think that was the first time I had known, I, I had learned about the church just walking by. And it, I was kind of like, like, wait a minute, you guys are right around the corner and you're doing this work in the community. How come we don't know about you? And so I've been, I've been there plenty of times after an All Angels was part of an, an alliance of of organization since our conversation that offered to help us in whatever way, including providing space if we needed it, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, so yeah, I, I definitely didn't forget that that great conversation. I've followed you since that conversation um, in learning that you basically are all over the city with um, with with the organization doing great things for uh, the homeless population. So, I mean, if you could just give us some context, man. I mean, again, I think a lot of people don't, you know, maybe have a, uh, an understanding of sort of the macro level issues and what people are dealing with who experience homelessness. Um, but so one question I'm asking a lot of people who I talk to on this podcast is simply, you know, when was your first, as you look back, what was the first th time that you can recall, even if I was as a kid or, or whatever, where you came face to face with the reality that there are people that don't have places to live while there's others who do and like just the reality of homelessness when did that hit you for the first time well it's been part of my life experience from as a child going back to my earliest memory being as though i'm a product of the foster care system so growing up since the age of two in foster care i'm transferred from home to home so mm -hmm. i know what it's like not to have a permanent uh foundation in terms of a home um and um, that experience, you know, is kind of traumatic because you're under the care of different people. You have to go through different neighborhoods and make your, make your, you know, establish yourself all over again, establish yourself in different schools and stuff. And, and for a child that's just learning and certain things are just so impressionable and forming your thought pattern, that has been my experience from my experience as a, per, as a product of the foster care system. And unfortunately, at the age of 10, I started experiencing homelessness, mm -hmm. um, meaning staying out all night, being in the streets, trying to find a safe place to sleep and stuff like that. I was placed in a group home at some point, and in the group home, it was so horrible there 
that I chose uh, many times to to just be in the streets, what they call AWOL, hmm. until at the age of 12, they permanently discharged me and told me to go wherever I came from, um, which I dated, I didn't have a place to go. And so I was permanently experiencing homelessness at that age. Um, and it was just, you know, this was New York when 42nd Street was not Disneyland. <laughs> it was the deuce, like 10 times worse than the HBO show. Yeah. You know? and, and, but, and 42nd Street was actually the only 24-hour place in New York City. So, you know, me not knowing better, I'm 10, 11 years old. I go down there because I know it's all lights and there's people out 24-7, not to realize this is the the um the um epic center of smut, <laughs> you know, of everything that you could imagine that is bad and and stuff. But I had to learn in this experience how to survive, how to protect myself, how to ward off, you know, predators and all types of different things and stuff. So this homeless experience has been a part of my life for many, many years. Um, and, you know, uh, it's, it's you know, I've had my periods, you know, I've also owned townhouses and condos and stuff like that. So some people think it's all gloom and doom, but I'm a hip hop pioneer who's made quite a few dollars in hip hop. Um, I have a street history and I made a lot of money in that too. But so, you know, I do have my periods of 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 having a foundation, having a home and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, when I decided um, to leave the streets alone um, and, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now a parent and I'm focused on taking care of my children. That's when things got a lot difficult financially. Um, and, you know, uh, my descent into homelessness as an adult only came because of the city's negligence. I don't mm -hmm. really talk about all of this because I don't really talk about me yeah. in most cases and stuff. But what people don't know is that the city made a mistake and they started charging me for child support for my son who I was taking care of. Mm. The only reason why I entered the shelter system is to prove to them that he was in my custody. Mm. But what I didn't know is that once you enter that shelter system, it becomes like a, let's see. Oh God, sorry. It's all good. I gotta figure out how to turn. I turned it solid mode on, okay. Technology. I told you this is gonna happen. It's all good, it's all good. Hey, you're a popular guy, I totally get it. So, um, so what I, what I, I spent, nearly 10 years trying to get them to fix their mistake. It wasn't yeah. working. And even leaving the state to try somewhere else and stuff because it was difficult. You know, I have other children. I'm taking care of my children. I have my son with me. And it was like, you know, they're taking my whole check, you know, and for my son, not for my other children, Yeah, just for the son that's with me. So it's like, I still got to take care of him. I can't get benefits because they're, they're you know, so anyway, my idea, because I saw when I left the state that he, um, that they would take him off the, the, the budget that he was on and then I could get services. So I said, if I show them that he's with me by being in there where they're paying for him, then maybe they'll fix this finally. And so I did that, not realizing that once you enter the shelter system, it becomes a never ending cycle. Yeah. of homelessness. And, and, and unfortunately that's what it became for me. I think, I think so many people, I mean, again, myself included, I mean, we, I, I feel like every time I, mean, I, ever... I, I know a lot of people think that I, I was homeless because I couldn't hold a job and because I was on drugs and I'm mentally ill and stuff, but those stigmas are just Listen, stigmas. We, those stigmas <laughs> are, are, are stigmas that, you know, again, that just perpetuate false narratives that then end up keeping people, uh, holding people back, right? I mean, and I, and I think that the, a lot of folks don't even realize just how debilitating the bureaucracy is and how, like, just like, like just the, in that very brief overview that you gave, obviously it's like a 30,000 foot level, right? Every day, there's so many details that go into that kind of thing. But yeah. like just getting access to benefits, like getting access to like correcting the record, 
um, like finding someone who knows how to speak the language and navigate the bureaucracy and get one department to talk to another, like people don't realize how impossible that is. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that's where the problem was, you know, I was doing the right thing as a father, um, pursuing custody of two of my daughters. And as the per ju- the judge's instructions, I had to apply for public assistance. I wasn't even on public assistance. I didn't need it. But they asked me to do it. Remember, I was in the music business. I had a significant amount of money. So I had my money saved. I was living pretty good. But because it wasn't a continuous income, they suggested that in the process of trying to get my daughters, they, that I should go through this. And so I did it. And in doing that, the judge made a mistake or the clerk rather made a mistake. And instead of listing me as the petitioner, listed me as the respondent. And so the mother of my son was able to access public benefits using his name under this. And as much as I went to fraud, I went to HRA, I went all over the place, court, I could not get this reversed. And what they didn't believe was, and I was told this, that how, why would a mother leave her child with the father? They simply didn't believe that this black man was taking care of his son. Mm. And when I, it took years, but when I went to the judge, the, the original judge, she said, I'm not giving you any paperwork declaring you as the custodial parent. I said, why not? This is what they're asking for. Because no father has to come into court to do that. The mother doesn't do that. You don't need paperwork. You're, you have him. You have all of the proof, the medical records, the school records. Like, you, you shouldn't have to come to court to prove that you have custody of your child. You already established paternity. Yeah. So we know you're the father. Like, no, I'm not doing that. You tell them that they're supposed to do what they got to do. And I'm like, it makes sense. So yeah. I never asked for it again. And every time they asked for that, I told them, look, you can cast, you go ahead. Uh, what they used to do, deny the case. Mm. So they wouldn't give me benefits or anything like that. When we went into the shelter system, they denied us every 10 days we were found ineligible. Every 10 days, ineligible. You failed to prove that he's in your custody, but you've been taking care of him for 10 days. You, you're paying for him to be here for 10 days. Well, I'm sorry. You know, We need you to bring that paper. You need to go to court. No, I'm not doing that. That's yeah. And, and again, and then, and then people don't realize also just the the hoops that you have to jump through. Like one of the things I, I tell people, uh, you know, that don't, again, that have no frame of reference is that, you know, if you're experiencing homelessness, you have to work twice as hard to get half as far. Like it's just, it's just yeah. the, the, the odds are stacked against you in so many ways. And I, what, what I didn't, not to prolong this, but what I didn't realize, and, and I'm realizing now as, 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 as I'm older, and especially in this advocacy and, and, and dealing with my, my son is that the long-term trauma that comes from that experience. You know, it's not just me, it's mm-hmm. also my son. And there are times when I can see from our interaction or for some things that he says that he still deals with that trauma. Yeah. And then, you know, which also triggers my already established trauma being the parent yeah. in this experience. And I'm like, it's extremely horrible for, for, these things to happen simply because the bureaucracy is wrong. The lack of compassion for human beings and children yeah. are, are gone. It, it's horrible. So, so tell me how the homeless hero was born. Like, I mean, like, just like, cause I know this is, you know, when I met you, you're already stepping into that phase of, of advocacy work. I mean, again, I know you've, you're a perfect example of someone who is trans. Like when I think of the word redemption, I think of someone who is, you know, taking the trauma and the pain and the hardship that you've experienced personally, and then you're you're turning it and redeeming it for the sake of others and for other people who are coming up behind you. And I've just again, you're one of those one of those people that have managed who is actively redeeming your own situation. I'd love if you could just tell us a little bit about how you transitioned from sort of just like you know you know, dad and, and sort of advocate, you know, sort of, um, homeless shelter resident to homeless advocate 
to homeless hero? How did that transition happen and what kind of sparked it? Well, obviously, you know, I've always been fighting for uh, my rights, my dignity, my respect. Um, just coming through my homeless, my foster care experience, and my homeless experience mm-hmm. as a child. Um, but in the present context, uh, I did get to a point where it was like, just, you know, this is just your day to day, whether I was sleeping on the bench, um, riding the trains or in one of the shelters. It was just, you know, especially in the shelter, it was like, I just come for the bed. I get up, go in the morning. I'm out of here. I don't need your food. I hit a soup kitchen, whatever. You know, I'm a nice guy. I don't, you know, start no trouble. But I, I had the, these are hostile, hostile environments. So I just had the mentality, as long as nobody mess with me, they okay. And, you know, I don't have no problems with anybody. So that was my experience day in, day out, no matter what went on. I didn't care. There's no toilet paper. I'm not going to use this bathroom anyway. Whatever. I'm not complaining. Just what? Oh, you moved the bed? Which Where's the bed at? You know, that was it. It got so dangerous in the environment, just the way the environment was as years passed, that I said, I'm, I'd rather go in the streets. And I went in the streets and I was like, as long as nobody gets too close to my bench, I'm okay. You know, the raccoons, when they start coming too much, I, then I know it's time for me to go and I go do the subway. So that was the normal whatever, you know. Uh, but in this time, you know, it could be partly that I'm getting too old to just just take anything. So when I'm when I'm in the shelter, it's the same. It was a hostile environment. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's on edge. Everybody's watching out, watching their back. Got to sleep with one eye open. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, I have high blood pressure. I have anxiety. I have PTSD. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't live like that, you know? But I was in a situation where under the threat of having a ticket, if I left the shelter, I was like stuck there. I, like I couldn't leave. I was like, if I get a ticket, I'm homeless. What are the chances of me, one, paying for the ticket, knowing when I have to pay for the ticket? I'm going to end up having a warrant. So the next encounter with police, whether they're helping me or not, is going to end up with me in a jail cell, which is, I'm not committing crimes. I don't want to yeah. go to jail, you know? So I was like, okay, I'll stay here. Um, but it was still a hostile environment. So the advocacy part started in there because I was like advocating amongst ourselves to do better, to mm-hmm. like, yo, we ain't got to fight. We ain't got to do this. Yo, you don't get high right here. I'm sleeping. I don't, I don't smoke K2. I'm, I'm not yeah. trying to get in contact, you know? I sought to change the environment, but I did it with love. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't do it being, you know, aggressive or anything like that. I opened up something I never did. I started talking to people. And the other thing is in recovery, I kind of learned to do that. Yeah. At Project Renewal's Recovery Center, where I went for and go for, uh, uh, um, uh, for their substance use, alcohol being my substance of choice, I was now getting a process of engagement that I never really got before, which allowed me to be more comfortable around other people and speak to them. And in that, I was able to bring that into the shelter environment and say, look, we ain't got to act like that. What's your problem? What's going on? Let's talk. You know, and in doing that, we, we began to connect in a different way in the shelter. So the, the incidents, the situation minimized. Yeah. Then I was able to address things. My first advocacy started with the food, the food. Mm. Oh my God. If you talk to everyone in the shelter, they're going to tell you, I don't care all the other stuff we talk about. The number one complaint is going to be about the food. Forget socks and all that other stuff. We want food, better food. The food is horrific. Yeah. Well, that's where the whole advocacy really started. And I had to strategically, uh, articulate my complaints because complaining can get you transferred quick. And nine times out of 10, you'll be transferred in a place that you really don't want to be in. And uh, because it was the pandemic, it was really difficult because, you know, your, your, your options were very limited and it was, it was just a, it was difficult, but I had a strategy of being able to get the message to the top people And I will say this, of all that I have done in this time, the one battle that I lost was the food. (laughs) 
I never got that change. They, they still said the same crap. <laughs> I never won that battle. And when I see some of my, 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 my former fellow residents, they still look at me like, yeah, man, once you became a homeless hero, you forgot about us. I'm like, what are you talking about? They say, yo, man, they still serving us this crap. Come on, man. And you know, and I'm like, well, the food, I never won that battle. So, so we, we got more work to do on the food. I got more work to do. I can't stop them. I got to go back to the food thing. But, but, um, but the homeless hero came because under the pandemic, the conditions got so dangerous for us. Mm-hmm. And we were in such fear. And I knew that if we didn't make changes, if they, the city didn't make changes, many people were going to die because that's what was happening. Mm-hmm. And so I started to push harder. And it also coincides with the, the, um, the um, Black Lives Matter movement. And I'll tell mm-hmm. you how. Uh, Project Renewal had did uh, a video and they were showing solidarity with the people protesting and stuff like that, which I thought was great. I was like, this is cute. It's cute. I said, but how could you be in solidarity with Black Lives Matter while you serve us food like this? Mm-hmm. While you have this unprofessional security, mm-hmm. unprofessional staff, well, we are undergoing this inhumane experience. Oh, no, 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 no. So I wrote something, and I, I couldn't write it as Shams. I wrote it as the homeless hero, because mm-hmm. I was like, man, they ain't going to transfer me nowhere to <laughs> walk away or, or send me back to Ward's Island. <laughs> you know, so I looked for a name that I wanted to represent all homeless people, because mm-hmm. I didn't want to. I wasn't talking for myself. I, mm-hmm. I usually get what I want because I know how to advocate for myself. But I was concerned for my fellow residents, some who didn't know how to do that. Right? Mm-hmm. I saw people throw the trays at staff, and I says, "I get his anger, mm-hmm. but that's not going to get him what he wants." Yeah. Well, I wanted to find a way for us to get what we want, mm-hmm. and. What I did was I came up with, I wanted to come up with a name. So I, I was looking for a name and I said, I was like, uh, uh. and I went to TRC, the recovery center. And I asked uh, them, like, what do you think? And and we were already developing an advocacy group there, by the way. This is before we got into mm-hmm. hotels. So we was advocating, we was forming that amongst ourselves, but I couldn't get people to be consistent. We couldn't get them to be consistent. So they suggested that I just go out on my own and continue doing what I'm doing. I was writing. No one knew it was me. And when it came down to doing the name, someone said, why don't you call yourself a hero? Because you always, you know, you always there for people. You like a hero to people. And I was like, no way. That's too much. You know, I got a cape and I can't fly and stuff like that. And then when I went back to the to the shelter and I'm laying down and I'm thinking, um, it reminded me of Joseph Campbell, who has a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And from that book, there's this concept of the hero's journey, mm. um, which is used as a template for a lot of writers and stories and stuff like that. But it's based on myths like the monomyth and stuff like that. This is one of my favorite books. Nice. Right. And when I thought about it, I said, wait, hero. And I thought I said, we're all on this journey. A homeless person going in the streets, encountering all the different things. And I was like, we all want to reach the climax of putting our key in the door. That's like the climax. That's the goal. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, we say, oh, yeah. And then it's our duty to go back and, as they say, place the booms upon your fellow people. Mm -hmm. So I said, that is what we do. So in that respect, I can take the name as hero. I'll be the homeless hero. And not T-H-E. Because I'm from hip-hop. So I got to throw my little hip-hop on there. D-A. Homeless hero. The homeless hero. I love it. Absolutely love it. So, I mean, it's it's so good. I mean, like I said, I I remember, so when we first met, you had been placed in the Lucerne Hotel during COVID, the pandemic. 
Um, you know, the the mayor, you know, took forever to start de de-densifying the shelters. Um, eventually, he did uh, a move of you know thirteen thousand or so people out of the congregate settings into isolation hotels. You were part of that wave originally and put into Lucerne, and obviously all the pushback and and negativity and 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 protests and all that stuff that happened around that placement. Um, we we all like anyone who is in this space understands the racial undertones of a lot of the the negativity around homelessness. I mean, and the fact that you know, again, I'm, as a white guy, I can't fully grasp or, or even maybe partially grasp the history of slavery and Jim Crow and uh, you know the drug, war on drugs and mass incarceration and 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 but people don't realize that homelessness itself is actually another. Like embodiment of systemic racism in that 40% of the homeless population are African-Americans while only making up about 14% of the general population. And with the whole placement of Lucerne and the pushback in the yeah, community. That's a, that's that figure, that, not to cut you off, no, do you, it. but that figure is relative to the overall United States. Absolutely. Not New York City, where it's uh, black, black and um uh, brown people make up ninety over ninety percent of the homeless population. But go ahead. No, no, I'm just no. You're you're making the point for me. I, I guess I'm just asking. Like, ed educate me a little bit, and and educate anyone who's listening. Like, how does how does that systemic racism and how does that impact like even your own story in terms of the, the bureaucracy and and keeping people stuck? Um, I just love to hear you tell us a little bit about how how that systemic racism influences policies and that and end up affecting housing equality and, and in situations like you experienced at the Lucerne on the Upper West Side. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, I'll try to give you the short version, <laughs> but um, you do have to go back 400 plus years to, um, to slavery. And, and then, you know, obviously we didn't own anything. We didn't even own our own bodies, you know, um, so we were branded, we would, we, you know, we were sold and transferred different places, et cetera, et cetera, for profit, people for profit, hmm. right? So now after slavery, um, they had what they call reconstruction, right? And so the Lincoln's predecessor, although we, there was all these promises made under Emancipation Proclamation and different things and, and reconstruction, his predecessor reversed all of that hmm. and took away all of that and basically set in place slavery all again through what is known as the black codes on one end and Jim Crow laws on another end. So these type of laws perpetually kept black people out of voting, black people and white people separated. They, black people um, um, weren't able to own land and have bank accounts and stuff. So a lot of communities came up, uh, black self-sustainable communities, because we couldn't integrate into the overall society. So there was a, a, a thing when you hear about Black Wall Street and you hear about here in New York, Seneca Village. These are places where black people thrived and created their own communities. And we were talking about All Angels Church, which is the only structure, although it was moved, that survived Seneca Village. So, you know, when you come up today and you look, we got a place that's now Central Park. And as beautiful as it is, it was a thriving Black community in New York City that allowed, that wasn't segregated because they allowed Irish immigrants to come there and settle and build communities. They rely, allowed um, um, Italian immigrants to come and build community and later Jewish uh, people to come and build community. Well, through eminent domain, they basically, they declared that the, the people there were uh, vagrants, where uh, um, they, they said the structures were shanty towns. Mm -hmm. These people were bums. These people were. So they used language in order to justify coming in there and raising a place in order to be able to establish Central Park and stuff. So now we have the Upper West Side, the Upper East Side. And, and, and you know, Black people like myself can't afford to live there uh, and, and are not welcome there, especially if you're homeless. Um, but 
when you look at systemic racism, it's not these individual people who may have this mentality that they've adopted because it's been ingrained into them and it's the way society is. But you also got to look at federal policy. So when you go back to Roosevelt's New Deal and all of these things that were done to help uplift masses of people after the Great Depression, after the war and stuff like that, when you look at all of that, it was never made to benefit us. And the legislation was further designed to keep us out of that advancement. So I used to think that the housing projects was developed for Black people. Hmm. Lo and behold, they were developed for poor white people. And we were to stay stuck in the ghetto communities that we lived in, or the ghetto-like communities that we lived in. Uh, so and it wasn't until white people also saw the ability of home ownership that they were able to take advantage of going into the suburbs. And we built up all of these suburbs throughout the United States and left the projects, which now we're empty to blacks to come up. So, you know, all of these things are legislative things that have been designed to keep black people in a, in a subservient position, um, education wise, criminally speaking, you know, our policing force, people don't like to hear this, but policing was developed out of slavery. Hmm. That was what you're, I know we had Deptis prison. Yeah. I know we had that. But when we're talking about police forces and, and the idea of law enforcement, this where slave catchers and other people that were trying to find ways to legally catch runaway slaves and bring them back into slavery and stuff like that. This was a money-making business, just yeah. like the prison industrial complex. So what we see today... I mean, it's even worse now because people are not seeing it for what it is. They're not understanding that the policies that are set in place, we see in the city when I say, you know, I'm not a guy that's against real estate. We all got to live somewhere. And hey, I would like to own my own place and land and stuff like that. That's the, that is the American ideal. You know, uh, the thing is that the, the, this is not what they want for us. Mm. What they would rather is that we be renters, mm. that we we be beggars. They would rather us be stuck on public assistance, and and so there, there's no real way to come up out of that. You know, the 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 idea of needing a help up to get out of a condition is a good idea, but the way this is done is a is a way that keeps us in perpetual poverty, perpetual dependence. Yeah. And so now those people who claim to do good in many cases end up becoming poverty pimps. Mm. So how to tell me a little bit more about that. Cause I'm thinking about like, um, you know, the reality of, uh, you know, people like, I know, like, I know a lot of people who say, well, see, there's, you know, they'll point at one person. Right or or two people uh, may, who who manage to scrape and claw and and miraculously somehow get from poverty to wealth or to you know to a wealthy status where they are homeowners and they are and they'll say see any anyone can do it see see the system works see that that guy that guy made it and and one of the things that I've I've struggled with is like well you know we're using the exception to define the rule instead of recognizing the rules that are in place that are keeping the other 90% of people just stuck in place. But I mean, how, how has like this system of, of injustice and, 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 you know, how's it, how's it impact specifically the homeless situation in New York right now? You mentioned the Upper West Side, Upper East Side, um, you know, red, no redlining is something that, you know, a lot of people may not know a, a lot about in terms of them act, people actually district, you know, drawing, like maps around segments of the city and saying and not and refusing to rent uh, to, to people of color or, or, or refusing to act, create access. I know the, the book, The Color of Law is a great book for anyone who's interested in sort of learning about the history, uh, the racist history of our, of our, you know, policies um, because it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't like long, long ago, right? This was like, no. this is in recent living memory. Yeah, yeah. And it's happening now. A lot of the things that we got under what they call urban renewal 
with things designed to destabilize our communities and stuff. And one of the New York stories I talk about is I talk about um, coming up from when Black people were in the 60s fighting for civil rights and you had the Black Power Movement. And obviously we've seen uh, great leaders like Martin Luther King killed, mm -hmm. assassinated, uh, Malcolm X assassinated. And we know now that there was a, a federal effort to prevent the rise of a black messiah, Fred Hampton got killed as well. And so all these different movements that existed got dismantled, destroyed, or compromised. Mm -hmm. And so in the 70s, I'm getting to New York, what we saw once that vacuum took place, we had now a destabilization in our communities. After the riots in particular, uh, what happened was here, I believe the governor had petitioned an organization called the Rand Corporation to do uh, sort of like a report, like what should we do so that this doesn't happen again? Like, you know, I don't want to use my language, but I'm pretty sure they said it in a different way. Yeah. Right. But part of what their suggestion was from the Rand Corporation was let's institute a policy of benign neglect. Mm. And this was a system of divestment out of communities like Harlem, the South Bronx, Bed-Stuy, hmm. landlords, uh, or not just landlords, but um, stores and businesses that employed Black people in the communities began moving across the water to Jersey and other places. People took the money out of the communities. Federal money came no longer was coming into the community the way it did before. And our communities became even more devastated. And this coincided with the flood of drugs into our community. Hmm. So now you have a revised heroin, heroin epidemic in our communities, particularly. And I always tie these things. People don't talk about it. We always tie these things because I know it. I lived it. I understand it. Yeah. And I see it for what it is, you know? So it's not just reading a book, watching a doc or something. I know yeah. it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. What I'm talking about. But there was a shifting with the war the Vietnam War in what they call the uh, the drug trafficking routes. So you had during the World War II, the French connection. And that was where a lot of the drugs was coming up through France. Notice there's always a military component to it. Yeah. And then during Vietnam, what they had, you know? What they had? The, yeah, do you know? No, tell me. They had the Golden Triangle. Mm. Which was so what? the Golden Triangle, a lot of drugs were flooded more into the communities. Each time you saw an increase of drugs, particularly heroin, mm -hmm. into the communities. And I particularly think that there's something sinister about that. Not to be a conspiracy theorist. Sure. But there are connections to this. So you have divestment from the neighborhood. You have a lot of drugs coming into the community and no way to, to, to solve this. So you get crime, you get this, you get that. Also, and not me coming from the South Bronx growing up in the 70s, we had, remember when the Bronx was burning? Mm -hmm. So what happened was, and I know this, you know, you, you can do the studies on it, but I know it for facts. I grew up in gang culture um, of that time. I wasn't in a gang, let's, let's be clear. But I grew up around that culture. I was real young, but, you know, many of the leaders were my mentors. But anyway, landlords, greedy landlords, would pay gang members to burn buildings in order to collect the insurance money. This was all the time. Yeah. This was normal. And that's where we saw this fraud. But one of the things in that Rand report, which you can go do the research, is that they asked for them to remove, uh, uh, we had used to have the fire emergency things on, 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 different, on each corner. Mm -hmm. They said remove them. This was a deliberate thing done yeah. to destabilize these communities, right? And then make the problem and come back with something called urban renewal. We're going to put a lot of money into these communities. Mm -hmm. We're going to change it. We're going to make it better. So when Clinton comes out with his, um, I believe it was Clinton, his empowerment zones, they empowered everybody except the poor people in the community. <laughs> so we saw a few things. We glad to have Pat Mark 
We're glad to have Starbucks and stuff, but damn, we want some housing too. Yeah. And so after this, we got all these stores. Now the developers come. Yeah. So we see these developments going up and we like, yeah, I'm going to put in the application. Yeah, well, you got to earn $500,000 a year to move into this place. Well, what about, I heard y'all do a lottery. The lottery is based on the AMI. So do you make 100,000? What? (laughs) What do you mean? And it's just not affordable for the average person that has been living here. So what did you do to the community of Bedside? What did you do to the community of Harlem? So under Giuliani, now you see people being displaced. Mm-hmm. You've seen it under 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 Dinkins, and and Koch is really the culprit in a lot of this. Koch is the culprit, but it continued under these other mayors. So under Giuliani, he said, "Oh man, this homeless stuff is getting out of hand. What the hell are we gonna do? I got the crime. I got the home. Got it. Public safety. We're gonna we're gonna lock them up for anything. You squeegee person, you get locked up." You know, you just on the sidewalk, you get locked up. He had it at one point where if you was riding your bike on the sidewalk from out of the projects to get to the, if the, if the police caught you, you're getting a ticket. You're getting, if that ticket come up, you got, you got a a warrant for something, you're getting locked up. He's locking everybody up. So, but remember, they also did certain laws in the projects. If your child got caught smoking weed. These are quality of life things, you know, broken windows, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or your child got caught on the park bench smoking weed. You're now facing eviction for that 14-year-old kid. This was going on yeah. all the time. But as part of this, and I, I ran a security company. I didn't own it. I ran it. That had a lot of buildings, residential units throughout the city. And in many of these buildings, they, we were asked to beef up security and to try and write up infractions for the, the smallest of things. Mm-hmm. You smell smoke, weed coming out the apartment, write it up. Because the landlords was trying to find ways to get the people out because that might have been a HUD building or whatever the case mm-hmm. is. But across the street, there was a now luxury building going up. Where the apartments are going for a million, the condos are going for a million dollars. Mm-hmm. So if I can get all the black and brown poor people up out of here, I can just redo this and turn this into something like that and make a lot of money. This is going on to the, to this day in our communities, yeah. but this is all a part of that the the the, the legacy. It's not the legacy, the the policies yeah. that are all um, systemically, structurally, and institutionally racist. So it's, it's when we're looking at racism, where we're looking at the ideal of white supremacy, mm-hmm. and we're looking at a segment of the population, not white people, you know, we're talking about an ideology mm-hmm. uh, of white supremacy where it wants to maintain power amongst these wealthy white people that and and keep the black and brown people who have always been down through policy down because of policy and laws and 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 force and all these other things we don't want to see them up yeah. we're not going to give them a helping hand we're not going to bring them to where they need to be so yeah we'll give them some little crumbs here take 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 an ebt car and go get you some groceries mm-hmm. you know we'll put you in this dilapidated building and call it housing or lock you put you in a shelter so real quick in the Giuliani, it was a prison industrial complex that got flooded mm-hmm. with black and brown people, right? You create in gentrification in neighborhoods, you're also going to see a rise of crime. That happens all across the country. Yep. But they got an answer for that, and that was prisons. So now Bloomberg, who I'm, I'm, I, I like Bloomberg, you know, for the first eight years, the the last four years, come on, Bloomberg, you, you're doing too much now. But, uh, but I, I like Bloomberg. But at the same time, Bloomberg continued this on a whole nother level. The compassion is gone for people that are struggling. So a lot of the stuff, the 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 policies that's implemented is def- detrimental to the well being of black and brown people. The problem with the Blasio, you came in, you had some good ideas, but you did none of that. Mm. You were off. And I think his biggest mistake was he didn't listen to anybody. Hmm. And that is a problem of leadership. If Why have these great people around you if you're not going to listen to them? Yeah. 
And, and so what we've seen under him, because there's such a stigma on people experiencing homelessness, that it's easy to sh shift them off. Mm -hmm. They are the invisible people. And if you're beholding to real estate interests and they're saying, yo, we're going to use 428 to get up in the hood, man, let's do that. Yeah, we're going to, you know, let, let us get that building. Let's get that land. Let's do it. And they funding your campaign. You are answering to them. You're not going to answer to me. I'm on, I'm, I'm hoping I get my SNAP benefits this month. Yeah. You know, so, so you, who cares about him? So this, this, that mayor sold out these communities like his predecessors mm -hmm. and ended up creating more of a problem. He didn't solve the problem. They're going to say during the pandemic, family shelters decreased and we built this amount of affordable housing. But you have a higher percentage of homeless people. You have especially homeless adults. Yeah. We, we just Your figures is always sketchy. You know, that's why you do them at certain times and stuff yeah. like that. You know, they're, they're completely sketchy, not realistic. And, and, and the reality is that we literally see that you are implementing policies that are harmful to, 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 to homeless people that are hurting them. They're hurting them. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not developing and benefiting from these policies. They are being hurt. And then because of the control that DHS has over this community, a lot of times what happens is the policies are coming from DHS. Sometimes we're looking at the shelter provider as the shelter provider is a bad provider. It's the provider. It's the pro no, 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 no. That could be true. Mm -hmm. Because if I was a provider, I'd be like Charles King and I'll say, I don't want your contract. Yeah. If, if, if that's what it means, I don't want that. Yeah. So a provider can do that, but they don't. In most cases, the thing is, though, that DHS, the way it operates and the city government under de Blasio operated in a way that it was a breeding ground for corruption. Hmm. It was a breeding ground for the dehumanization of this population. Why? Because no one cares about them. Everyone just I don't want to see them on a train. I don't care. I got a brother that's homeless. I don't want them on a the train. I know I'm not, I, I care about people, but I don't want to go to work and see them. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see them in front of my door. I don't want to walk down the street and see, I just, just do something with them. Mm -hmm. That's people's mentality. And they're not seeing them as human beings, as shams, the baron that could be the homeless hero. Yeah. But I was the guy on the train. I was the guy that was sleeping on the bench. I was the guy coming on the bus from Ward's Island. And, you know, I'm the same guy. And in the same way that I could be doing this stuff that I'm doing now, any one of them can do that. Yeah. I was the guy dealing with mental illness that was drinking like I shouldn't have been drinking, you know? Yeah. So, but the difference is that, you know, it got to that point of where I said, when I got stabilized, no longer wanted to commit suicide because it's how bad it got. Yeah. That I said, well, if I'm not going to kill myself, I got to find a way to change this because this is not working. Yeah. <laughs> and so here we are. But, you know, one thing I don't want anyone to lose sight of is the fact that this whole thing, and it's not just uh, uh, for New York City, this is reflective all across the United States. When you see, black and brown people going through this experience, this is all the direct result of what has happened coming up from slavery. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what, and I think, you know, for, for people that are, I think there's a lot of people out there who probably have good intentions, probably, you know, want to, to they don't want to be part of, you know, the systemic and racist policies that, 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 that we've all, you know, been a part of and witnessed. So I guess this, to, to kind of zone in on something, what would you say is something that anybody, like what would you advise me as a privileged white cisgendered male? You know, like how would, what, what is it that folks like myself can do to become an ally and to become um, a voice and, and, a, and a support um, to people who uh, are either dealing with systemic injustice broadly or on, a, on an individual level? Um, a racist or, or systemic injustice personally? Well, that's a good question. That's a great question. Um, because I do see that this is such a, a um, 
such a major problem. And it doesn't just affect black and brown people, it affects everybody. And in the homeless experience, it's the homeless experience. So I have quite a few uh, people from other so-called ethnicities mm -hmm. who are going through this experience and there's no real difference with the experience. Um, it's a bad experience for them as well. Um, but this is an experience that affects everybody, rich, poor, etc. The only way to solve it is if we're all engaged in trying to solve it. You know, I realize being a directly active active directly impacted person that even I have a certain responsibility. You know, like I have to if I want to see myself treated a certain way, I have to treat people a certain way. I have to do certain things in order to change the stigma. Like like it shouldn't be duty bound upon me, but I have to take, play a role in this too. And so for other people like yourself, who I look at the example of, of Open Hearts Initiative. Mm -hmm. and I like the site, um, the, the, the brilliance of Corinne Lowe, one of the co-founders, who when she met me, um, before she met me in person, she asked me to come speak at this protest they were doing. And I wasn't revealing myself at the home, as the homeless hero because I didn't want retaliation. Mm -hmm. This is when we're at the Lucerne. And so they're doing this protest and I'm like, I don't know, I don't want to speak there. And as something happened, I, I decided I'll, I'll do it. And even though when, when I'm going and I met up with her, I'm like, hell no, I'm not doing this. What the hell? No. But she was so brilliant. Instead of in her privilege speaking for me, mm. The first thing she did, she didn't even give me a chance to get my get out of this. First thing she did was pass me the mic hmm. and let me speak for myself. And by doing that, and right after that, I think Brian Benjamin, I'm now Lieutenant Governor, said this guy should be the mayor. And 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 but you don't understand, like I'm not, I wasn't looking for nothing. I don't even want to be public. Now I'm looking like, okay, I better pack my stuff because these people are definitely gonna send me to Far Rockaway. <laughs> I'm a messed up now, <laughs> you know. Um, but Brian Benjamin says this guy should be the mayor, and I'm looking like, what the hell? And the everybody that spoke thereafter kind of gave me that encouragement, kind of planted a seed. Mm -hmm. And so therein lies what I'm telling you. These are people with privilege, whether it's the privilege of a job, of an elected position, just a little better off than I am who said, I'm not looking at you like you're the homeless guy from the Lucerne. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at you like you're a great speaker, like you have something to say that's worthy of being heard. And, and I'm glad you spoke. And hey, we, can you come speak here? Can you come speak there? Um, and now I've been in so many synagogues, so many schools and stuff like that. But I'm only a reflection of everybody else you come across out there. Mm -hmm. So I'm vulnerable in saying, I deal with mental illness. Mm -hmm. I deal with substance abuse. I don't say it's alcohol. No, you can think what you want. Mm -hmm. But it's still a substance. I have an addiction problem. I, 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 I slept on the trains. I slept in the streets. I slept in the streets. There's nothing special. I, I was an academic star, so I do like to read, you know, really? back when I was a kid. But... At the time, I still was sleeping in the streets. Mm -hmm. So you, we don't have to let our circumstance define us. And we can start from anywhere. I didn't start wanting to be a damn advocate. I just stopped. I started not wanting to see people smoke K2 next to me mm -hmm. or see a fight break out in the, across from me. I just wanted to be safe. Yeah, That's what I started with. But as we have grown with support from people with privilege, it's what uh, activist Shanika Charles called, uh, well, she, she taught me about it. I never heard of it until she said it. But she said, oh, you, I said, yeah, I'm lucky to have people with privilege around me. And she said, well, you have privilege too. And I said, not me. I got my EBT card. I'm privileged like <laughs> that, I guess. She said, no. She said, what you're engaging in is privilege lending. I said, privilege lending. Break it down. And she said, privilege lending 
is you loaning them the privilege of your experience, mm. something they don't have, of your lived experience. That has value. Mm. That's beautiful. And they're loaning you maybe the privilege of their access, their privilege of their ability to make a phone call and somebody's gonna listen because they wanna get that vote or that or that investment or that, you know, that that mm-hmm. that uh uh donation, whatever, campaign donation, whatever. And I what I learned to do is try to bridge those gaps. And I can tell you from the example of open hearts, is I forget that some of these people are professors like Corinne. Mm-hmm. They never say that. You don't know their income levels. I there are some people a part of open hearts that live on the Upper West Side that are housing insecure. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? But we don't really know. We don't care. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. Uh, I I had to be reminded that a a lot of them have gone through trauma and different experiences, and that's why they can identify. Yeah. You know. So in your privilege. The way you help is by engaging with the people that you are serving and listening to them. Mm-hmm. There is a value in someone who may be educated, let's say. I rely on the educated among me to provide guidance in areas where I may be lacking an understanding. I rely, I call up the Linda Rosenthal's and say, I'm thinking about... This And in my little mind, because I don't know how a law is passed, but I call her up and she mm-hmm. loans me the privilege, her privilege of understanding of being a legislator to say, Shams, this is the steps that you a per, that a, a law goes through in order to get passed. These, this is how it works. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? And, and so in that, there's such value in that connection. And and by the same token, when many of these people need an understanding of something that they're trying to address, they see value in my lived experience and in my understanding and ability to articulate what should be done and how it should be done. And that happens because we're in conversation and communication, because we're engaging. They're not afraid of me. Mm -hmm. They're not afraid of my past. They're not afraid of of my frankness or my truthfulness. I think they actually like that. <laughs> they appreciate that. Absolutely. You know? And so you be engaged yeah. with directly impacted people. Invite them to the table. Mm-hmm. Let them speak. And let them have a hand in the decision making. And if this happened across the board, you'd see this, this the issues change overnight. If we really listen and we really start to do what works for them, mm-hmm. what works for them. That's amazing. And so good. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, thank you so much. I, I have one last question for you and it's, again, it's really, really just insanely practical, but um, what is one thing, like, what is it, what is it that the, anyone can do to help like if they see someone panhandling they see someone you know uh who's down and out someone's down you know having a going through a rough time in their neighborhood or on their street corner or under the overpass what tell, just give real practical just real practical like what's one thing what, what can we do like how what can the average person do to try to just see that person and, and engage that person and offer some dignity and some help okay that's that's actually a great question that gets asked a lot of times and um, it's probably one of the most difficult questions for me to answer. And I'll tell you why, because even in my homeless experience, I didn't really engage with other homeless people. Mm-hmm. It's not that I frowned down on them, but I just felt different. Like I felt like I'm just waiting until my movie deal goes through and I won't be homeless no more. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I'm not a bum bum. I, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, this is my, my, you see, my bench is clean. You know, I just... You know, so, so even I have my own damn stigmas. What the hell? You know, <laughs> but so when I get asked, I'm always like, oh, what do you do? You know, <laughs> but I've learned, I've talked to and I've engaged. I've actually taken what people have told me. And I do that because now I'm open and I'm I'm engaging and I'm not in my own box mm-hmm. anymore. So what I do, what I do is. And what I suggest people do is always greet them. And and I've learned this from directly impacted people. This is not my thought. 
this is I'm directly impacted and I, I know what works with me, but I kind of, you know, didn't understand it from my perspective. But in talking to them, the number one thing they say is just smile. Mm. Just don't look at me like I'm a piece of garbage. Yeah. You know, so what I do now, there's a lot of homeless people in the streets of Harlem. And what I do now is when I walk by, I always, you know, if I could, if we can get eye contact, I always say hi. If they're up and they look like they're, you know, they're moving around, I greet them. If I'm walking past them, hey, what's up? How's everything? You good? Mm-hmm. All right. All right. You All right. Now nah, I'm just checking on you. You know, sometimes they give you a look. Now nah, I'm just checking on you. No, no. I'm just making sure you're good. And and it's the way you do it and how you do it. It diffuses mm-hmm. any negative thought. You know, there are times when it's it's cold or it's raining. And and if I, like there's a guy that sleeps next to a, a store over here. And when I pass him a lot of times, I don't like to interrupt him, you know, but I'll call out, say, yo, 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 you want a coffee or something? It's nothing for me to go get him a coffee, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I, hey, you want a coffee? Yo, I'm just checking on you to make sure you're all right. And they're usually nice. They're, they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. Thank you for checking on me. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that, you know? And and I just do that. Sometimes, you know, I, I just show that like, yo, I don't care what you're wearing or how you look or the shopping cart you pushing or whatever, like you're a human being, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's all I do. And, and, and the trains is the same thing. Sometimes, you know, you might get somebody that obviously might be dealing with mental illness. And if it looks, you know, I, sometimes I just give them a look, like, you know, just acknowledge them. They might be talking or this and that, or, you know, I'm, I'm careful but I'm also acknowledging you're human. Mm-hmm. I got it. You know, you're going through some, you know, and if and if they do engage, I say, yo, nah, I've been there too. Yo, nah, you I, I feel you. You know, I know how to talk to them and stuff like that. You know, um, and then sometimes, you know, if someone's expressing violent behavior, violent thoughts, you can come across that. How do you respond? Mm-hmm. I usually stay quiet, don't say anything, don't give any funny looks. Mm-hmm. And if I can get out of there, I'll get out of there. If I can locate somebody that could probably help them, I, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes, depending on the situation, if I if other people are around, I stay around in the event that the that a situation may take place that I may be able to intervene on. You yeah. know, because I don't have that fear. Yeah. But um, you know, it, it homelessness come in all colors. Yeah. Comes in all mentalities and emotional. Uh, engagements you'll meet some homeless people that's like nah i'm happy mm-hmm. i'm i'm i don't have to be homeless i have a rich family and i'm homeless because i like to just be to myself mm. and you you're thinking all the crazy stuff like how long were you on drugs you yeah, know yeah. when i used to do the first interviews like <sighs> which drug did you use i'm like none what are you talking about you know like yeah did your mother put you in a trash can? Is that how you end up in foster care? Well, no. Where did, where did you get that from? Wow. Well, well you, you're homeless. They, ain't they, they, you know, like, do, 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 you, do you hear voices? I'm like, oh, goodness. This is the stuff that they ask you when you go to Bellevue, yeah. when you go into the, into the intake. Yeah. You know, and I'm like... I'm not telling you that if I did hear voices. Like, <laughs> Certainly not now. <laughs> so, 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 you know, so I'm like, the stigmas, oh my goodness, you know. Oh, um, you know, that online, they was killing me at one time. You know, they were like, oh my God, we know he's a criminal. How much time? I've never done no time. What are you talking about? I'm, you know, but you've been arrested. Of course, I'm black. All black people have been arrested, you know? you know? But that doesn't mean we've been convicted of a crime, and that doesn't mean I'm a criminal. You know no, what I mean? But the well, stigma, if you're homeless, you got to be a criminal. Yeah. If you're homeless, uh, what's the other thing? You got to be on drugs. If yeah. you're homeless, you got to be mentally ill. And yeah. that is so untrue. Yeah. The homeless experience could actually produce mental illness 100 percent, absolutely i i, I yeah. know a guy a guy i know what we're, we're I'm, I'm probably taking two more more of your time than i deserve but um i know a guy one time who when i met him like 10 years ago on the street he was an artist and was pleasant and was would actually help us 
walk around and engage people and give out socks and meals and stuff. And over the years, he's his mental health has just deteriorated. And now he is a shell of the man that he was even just six years ago. Um, and it's just imagine it's, if he was placed in an environment yeah. that was more conducive to his temperament and yeah. to, to who he is. Same thing with me. You know, if they would have intervened many years ago and I would have had secure housing, I would have never gotten to the point where, you know, I wanted to kill myself. Yeah. You know, and, and it's like, you know, this this is why we're push, pushing for things like uh, uh, a housing first policy. We want to focus on housing. Yeah. Um, we don't want homelessness to be segued into being simply... Um, a thing for that that is about mental illness yeah. and substance use, um, because then we get into the mindset that oh, so if we just put them in facilities, we solve the problem. No, yeah, put, put me in the house and I could be the homeless hero. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can do interviews yeah. with with you and Absolutely. and actually try and find a way to help people. And plays, you're in a play right now. <laughs> in, a, in a play. Exactly, addressless. Imagine that. I've never done this in a in a shelter. In like a play, y'all go kick rocks. Get out of here. Well, in a play. Well, my friend, I hope I hope this is the first of many conversations that we have. Um, I just want you, just want you to know how much I respect you and appreciate you. I've I've, I've respected and appreciated you from the moment we we exchange words. Like I said on on West uh, West Eighty Street. Um, thank you for your time. I know you're a busy guy. You got the play, Addressless, um, and you got so much going on. So I just really appreciate your time today and just want to thank you so much. Appreciate you as well. I am so grateful that you took the time to listen to this episode of the Neighbors with No Doors podcast. I hope you found it helpful and empowering. Just so you know, I'm releasing a book that is also going to be called Neighbors with No Doors, and I would love for you to check it out. You can find it at neighborswithnodoors.com. You can like our Facebook page or follow along on Instagram and Twitter. I'd like to thank my producer, Rex Harson for helping me put this together, as well as the many guests who gave me the gift of their time and their story. Have a great day. We'll see you next time.